Welcome back to part two of a special two-part episode of the audio version of a video debate between Carlo Rovelli, Sabina Hassenfelder, and Eric Weinstein that we had on uh, the 25th of July 2022, and I was honored to be the host of this talking point. And I want to make sure that you subscribe to the Institute for Arts and Ideas uh, YouTube channel, IAI's YouTube channel. Uh, where you'll find this and you'll be able to communicate and also find information uh, about when I'm hosting uh, future episodes. This is their most popular ever live episode as far as they have told me. So uh, it was a real debate, as you heard in the first part, if you listened to part one. If you didn't, go back uh, to the podcast feed and download it. It's audio only. It's not on my YouTube channel. Um, and I want to ask uh, you all to leave some feedback while you're there. Leave a, uh, a rating or a review. If you can, on Apple Podcast, you can do both. On Spotify, you can leave a rating. On uh, Audible and uh, all sorts of other podcatchers, you can do that. So in part one, we talked about the redefinition of science relating to the uncovering of objective reality and what limits the observer's quantum mechanical brain must play in this whole process. And we heard a lively debate from... Uh, folks uh, about that very topic. And in this uh, second part, we get into some discussions of alternative approaches, including upcoming guests on both the YouTube channel and the podcast, Sir Roger Penrose, talk about consciousness, uh, reeking of quantum mechanical origin. I want to talk to him and Stuart Hameroff about that. In this uh, part of the episode, I also took questions from the audience. So again, subscribe to the IAI YouTube channel. While you're there, subscribe to my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating. And you can leave questions uh, for the future guests that I have on the show. As I said, I have Sabina Hassenfelder coming up. We already recorded that. But future guests like Mick Bostrom and others, you can leave questions for as well. So please do that. And now sit back and enjoy part two of my special debate on the origins of quantum reality with Eric Weinstein, Carlo Ravelli, and Sabina Hassenfelder, all past guests on the Into the Impossible podcast. Enjoy. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. A man who had a huge influence in my life, uh, which is Sir Roger Penrose, <laughs> who's lately gotten uh, his his emperor's new clothes have kind of dovetailed into uh, not only a discussion of an alternative model for the origin of the universe, for gravity, et cetera, but also of consciousness itself, venturing into actually making uh, and and conducting experiments on uh, on systems at room temperature and so forth. And these involve so-called microtubules and, and other things with Stuart Hameroff, um, also friends of, of many of us on here today. Uh, so, but but of course, as I said in the very beginning, uh, Sir Roger, you know, mentions that this whole issue, you know, as he says, reeks. And I, I can't do his voice. I mean, I, I would, none of us are British, unfortunately, uh, but we, we could do it. So he says that consciousness reeks of an observer. And so it seems to be, again, not to rehash this this all, but but I think, you know, this this notion that, you know, Carlo has, has stated on other, on other uh, occasions that, you know, there's a relationalism to both, uh, to, to these issues. And I wonder as an experimentalist, uh, I actually salute the work that Roger and Stuart are doing to actually try to do, you know, we have this canonical kind of quantum experiment, you know, paradigm of, of, of something being perturbed. But but I wonder, Carlo, um, is there something that we could do that make the, the measurement independent of the observer? Is there is there anything that we could use? Maybe it's a cosmological experiment, as Sabina might, might have been hinting at. But, but do you agree with Sir Roger that this, you know, that consciousness is so deeply embedded, it almost cannot be extracted? From this issue? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, 
it's good to explore extreme ideas and somebody can explore extreme ideas. It's never bad if somebody explores. And if a Nobel Prize and you're one of the smartest people around and you have proved that black holes are generic and you have invented spin networks on which my work is based, I'm listing the achievement of Roger Penrose. Uh, if you're a great scientist, you're free to explore uh, extreme ideas. So I have an immense uh, respect and estimate of, of Roger, who is a great friend, and uh, uh, a lot of my work is based on his, uh, on his mathematics. But this extreme idea he has been exploring uh, that uh, somehow consciousness is directly um, affected by quantum mechanics to be understood with quantum mechanics, I find it totally unconvincing. And I'm with uh, uh, Sabine here, and I would say with the majority of my, the large majority of my colleagues. Um, this doesn't mean dismissing somebody who explored extreme ideas, but uh, I definitely- Can you, can you elaborate on that? Why, can you, for the audience, again, there's 1,500 people at least watching, mm -hmm. it's probably more like two or 3,000. Can you elaborate, why do most of our colleagues, uh, as you claim, which, you know, Roger might dispute, why, why do they dismiss it? Well, for the reason uh, Sabina said so simply and clearly, because the, 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 the measurement of quantum mechanics we're talking about, uh, it suffice uh, a piece of uh, an apparatus made by, uh, by, by metal and, uh, and copper, copper and, uh, and glass uh, to, to collapse the wave function. So it's nothing to do with the consciousness at all, zero. Uh, it's, uh, it, it seems pretty obvious to me, uh, I, I may be wrong, but I also may be wrong that the Earth goes around the sun uh, for, for, for what we know. So um, again, that's a, uh, an idea which uh, <clears throat> I think is a fringe idea. It has much more traction in, uh, on, uh, on YouTube and on, uh, on Facebook than in uh, scientific conferences. Having said so, let me go back to the main debate, because I think we are mixing two things here. Mm -hmm. One is that uh, whenever you do science, uh, you're doing science uh, as a human, with the limitation of, the, of a human, uh, um, as a existing being, which has a, a perspective on the world, which look at the world from, uh, um, from a culture, from an, inside a language, uh, with all sorts of limitations which are ours. This is generic about science. It's true, and it's the reason for which we should understand science as our uh, best way to address reality, but not as the uh, absolutely unquestionable, ultimate, certain statements about what's real and what's not real. That would be silly. It's mm -hmm. not. It's human. Uh, it's the best we can say about reality, uh, where reality is what we say about it. Wow. So that's about science in general, but then we should not confuse this with quantum mechanics specifically. Quantum mechanics has a measurement problem, which is puzzling. And it has puzzled everybody for long, some period more, some period less. And it's still puzzling because uh, quantum mechanics doesn't give us a picture of what goes on uh, there between one measurement and the other. So the community is sort of uh, uh, split. There are those who says, well, who cares? It works very well. And uh, we do all our current technology with it. Then those who try to fill up the dots uh, say, okay, so quantum mechanics doesn't tell, but I add something. Maybe there is a hidden world of uh, hidden variables, as it's called, uh, of things happening that I can add to the theory. Nothing really changes in the prediction, but it gives me a sense of what is going on. Or others, maybe there are many multiple worlds. We only see a, 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 a sort of a emergent little picture of, of, of a multiplicity of, of, of universes. 
um, which are uh, beyond what we see. That's one group of people. Another way of solving the, the puzzle of quantum mechanics uh, is to really think that, to really take a very strong uh, instrumentalist perspective. I don't want to know what's happened there. I make a series of measurements uh, and I don't ask what happened in between. I think that there is a third way, and I've worked all my life on a third way, like many others, um, which addresses directly the question of observer, which is the following. I think that what science is, in fact, what reality is, or better, or better the best way we have to think reality, we, we can think reality now as at the light of our experience, what we know, is not that reality is a set of individual self-standing objects with properties, but rather that reality, that, that every object has property only when interact with something else. So um, not with us as a human, not with us as a, a, as a living being or as a, or as a human or as a male or as a white male with PhD, I don't know, uh, but as, as uh, physical systems. So systems affect one another, interact with one another, and that's, this, that's when the properties come about. So the fact that we describe an atom through its interaction with an apparatus has nothing to do with us as observers special, has to do with the fact that this is the best way to understanding reality, mm -hmm. how things affect one another. So there is a deep relational structure of reality revealed by quantum mechanics. And that's one possible perspective on quantum mechanics is the one I and a part of my, our colleagues consider particularly interesting. Well, Sabina, you've uh, you've had uh, conversations about uh, Hammeroff and Penrose, and what Carlo just said. Uh, I'm not going to give him an opportunity to to correct me when I'm wrong, but it, it did have some kind of um, I would say panpsychic uh, adjacent maybe views that consciousness is is all you know participatory. Where where do you fall? I mean, obviously you've spoken against it, and that it's it sort of doesn't fall in the in the uh, purview of traditional science. Talk about um, Penrose and Hammeroff, who you've criticized. I, I'm actually supportive of them. They're doing experiments, which is what I do. They're trying to take the role of the observer out by putting people under sedation, you know, in the case of Hammeroff and in the case of my students when they go to my lectures. Uh, but but what, why do you criticize Penrose and Hammeroff? Uh, or what specifically do you criticize them for? And then what? how do you react to Carlos's thing that smacks of, of uh, reeks of panpsychism? No, I'm not a panpsychist at all. I know, I'm just joking. <laughs> at, at all. <laughs> at all. Okay, I was about to say it doesn't sound panpsychistic to me, but he beat me to it. So, yeah, um, uh, first let me say a few words uh, in defense of, oh, so this isn't working, great. Um, so this is my book, which you've already seen earlier, um, which, yeah, there it is. Um, which has an interview with Roger Penrose uh, exactly about this topic, uh, so you can read what he said in his own words. And also my next video, coincidentally, on Saturday uh, will be about what, what Penrose's argument uh, actually is. So in a nutshell, he says, um, consciousness can't be computable, therefore something weird has to be uh, happening. And he, he puts the weird thing into quantum mechanics um, because that's uh, in, into the measurement process because that's the only thing that we don't understand, to make a long story short. He doesn't say that consciousness causes the collapse of the wave function or something like this. It's rather the other way around. He says that um, the the collapse of the wave function is responsible for our experience of consciousness 
And um, this has been criticized for the obvious reason uh, that quantum effects are generally fragile and it's kind of hard to see how they would play a major role in the brain. And uh, Penrose and Hameroff have countered this by saying, so this was an estimate which I think was done by Max Tigmark and you find it on the archive. Uh, and they have um, rebutted this by saying, well, you can't make an estimate using quantum mechanics uh, to um, constrain a theory which isn't quantum mechanics, uh, right? So, so this makes sense. So in principle, it could be internally consistent. Um, I think there's some mysterious stuff going on in their explanation, like even if you believe all this stuff with the coherent stake in, in the microtubules that collapse every once in a while, what's it got to do with consciousness? I don't know. So like, this is like this little asterisk where suddenly a miracle happens, right? And uh, it's going to do something with consciousness. Uh, but yeah, I mean, God, who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we don't really understand consciousness. Uh, it, it is conceivably possible that quantum effects play a role in the brain. Maybe they actually do play a role for consciousness. Right. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, uh, my friend Tim Palmer, who is also in the book, I have interviewed him as well. <laughs> so um, he has pointed out that um, quantum mechanics is a source of uh, noise and noise quite possibly plays a major role uh, in our brain. Right. It's not. It's not just something that um, you sometimes need to uh, get out of uh, what you could call a, a local optimum YouTube if you if you want to. <laughs> the your barometers, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. So so if if you get stuck with your computation, it's also that noise. It doesn't. Um, I mean, if you think of stuff like um, stochastic resonance, maybe you can actually use it to amplify uh, a signal. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, Eric, I can hear the audience. You know, kind of getting frustrated, rolling their eyes at all of us, agreeing with one another, and I'm counting on you, but but I want to ask you a question, Eric. Um, what is the most, you know, kind of quantum mechanical question? It seems almost tautological that an observer observes something and, and has an effect on it uh, ever since the double slit experiment, which is, you know, kind of the canonically most classically, to mix metaphors, uh, experiment in quantum mechanics. Um, so for the audience members that are getting frustrated, what are they talking about? What do they argue about? What do they agree about? Uh, where do you fall on this? You know, do we have to think of the role of the observer or not? It seems patently obvious to me, but um, uh, what, what do you have to think uh, to, to opine here? You're muted, Eric. All right, I'm unmuted now. <laughs> it was Couldn't hear you. We could observe you. Uh, couldn't hear that you. was preemptive. Um, look, I hate it. I, I just can't stand the whole discussion about consciousness and quantum mechanics. And then somebody will mention mushrooms and say mushrooms are from outer space and they're aliens. And maybe we need psychedelics to perturb the consciousness to explain the quantum mechanics. And I, I feel like, okay, now we're off in recreational philosophy land because we don't have work that's working uh, for us to be doing. Right. And um, when you had Penrose on your podcast, you explicitly said, I'm not going to talk about consciousness. Why did you do yeah, that? Because it, honestly it's boring is look it's okay. it's it's not that interesting compared to things that we actually are good at and we've done and that we sh there's a weird thing where people want to talk about consciousness and quantum theory because they understand neither and then the idea is well maybe maybe it'll be better if we just mix these two things you can picture a kid with a chemistry set with two vials of things they Peanut don't butter. understand putting them into an Erlenmeyer flask before the house blows up um I think that in general, we love 
uh, Penrose because he's willing to make such a completely crazy and insane uh, statement in theory. And that what we are short on in the community is courage. We all have crazy ideas. And in general, we try to make people regret the day they were born when they when they make the mistake of sharing them. So I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's wonderful that he's shared it. I think that there's some interesting things to note about us as, uh, as, as uh, non-reliable narrators, as literary theorists would call it. So for example, Sabina is very focused on the community, but she also isn't sure that the community exists, right? And so you have these paradoxes where she's convinced that she exists. She can't necessarily prove that the rest of us do. Um, that's an example of these sort of fundamental tensions that we have when we try to operationalize these things and explore them. In the case of quantum, um, you can ask the question, which of the body's systems uh, are quantum aware? So I believe that we know that cephalopods, uh, in the case of cuttlefish, use polarized light um, and may be doing quantum mechanical uh, measurements with their eyes. Uh, I have it on the authority of Nima Arkani Hamed, who explained to me uh, in his office that geckos um, are in fact using the Casimir effect. Uh, Luca Turin is focused on olfaction and the idea that the brain uh, is using quantum mechanics in the nose and the olfactory bulb in order to discern different scents. We're not nearly as interested in all of those things being quantum mechanical as we are in consciousness being quantum mechanical. And I think this gets back to the narcissism issue. If we want to talk about quantum effects in biology, we've got a bunch of stuff where we're on pretty solid ground. And if we want to jump to quantum consciousness, I do worry that what we're hoping is, is that the problems of consciousness and the problems of quantum mechanics will miraculously kill each other in a Mexican standoff, which is yet to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much and for being so succinct. So we have audience questions that'll be coming up in just a bit after our final topic, which I'm going to throw to Sabina, uh, which has to do with uh, looking into the future, into your crystal ball. You're so perspicacious uh, and, and you love to think about these big picture topics. And you've, you've, you've thought and, and talked about, you know, the nexus of quantum uh, mechanics, quantum physics and cosmology. Is it another you know, kind of opportunity for, as Eric said, you know, to put two things together that we don't understand, maybe one will come out. Um, so first I want to ask uh, Sabina about, uh, are there, you know, potential fruitful avenues that we can learn about the cosmos, uh, from the cosmos, about the quantum? In other words, in my field, we talk about learning about inflation, we talk about quantum perturbations, gravitational waves, Carlo's written a beautiful new book about GR, et cetera. But I want to ask you, um, is that really true? Is there any manifestation in cosmology of the quantum, or is it just extrapolation and, and essentially modeling um, that might be going too far? Well, there should be, uh, right? In principle, it should be possible to see imprints of quantum fluctuations in the CMB, and people have calculated what they would look like and exactly what you would have to look for. The problem is just it's uh, beyond current measurement uh, precision and it'll probably remain so for a long time. Um, so yeah, I mean, as, you, as you've noticed, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, I've worked on quantum gravity for some for a long time uh, and this is one of the possible observables of quantum gravity that you can look for it's one of the very conservative i should say there are also 
um, less conservative ones, uh, like, uh, you know, probably um, that Mia uh, Yeshov Shorty has this idea um, that you might be able to see echoes in um, gravitational waves emitted from black holes because the black hole horizon might have a quantum structure. Um, so I'm not terribly convinced of this, but I mean, you can look for it. Uh, it's it, it's there in the data. And then I guess, I mean, there, there are obvious things to say, like if you look back further in time, um, you'll be able to learn more about uh, the quantum processes that happened uh, mm -hmm. back then. Though maybe cosmology is not the best way to do it because um, you might <laughs> prefer to build a bigger collider and bang things in, uh, into each other. <laughs> Very good. Now, Carlo, you are one of the world's experts in uh, things revolving in quantum gravity. Is it, well, first of all, how do you react to what Sabina said? Um, and then second of all, can we have a theory of quantum mechanics without a theory of quantum gravity? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, of course, we, we do have a, a theory of quantum mechanics uh, uh, that works very well. It's the best theory we have. And uh, quantum gravity, uh, we have tentative theories. I, I, I work on theory. I'm very keen on it. I'm very uh, uh, enamored of it. But it's, it's, it's far from being an established theory. It's not quantum gravity. So... Uh, if you want, we, we don't have a quantum theory of gravity on which there is agreement. We certainly have a quantum uh, a, a quantum theory. Um, I, I agree with uh, with Sabina. We have a lot of quantum uh, phenomena in the sky. Uh, in fact, we, we would not understand uh, the sun without quantum mechanics. We would not understand supernova without quantum mechanics. We would not understand uh, uh, helium abundance uh, in the sky without quantum mechanics. So quantum mechanics is uh, used uh, not in the laboratory just for, for small things. It's used enormously to understand it. It works fantastically well. Um, let me say a few things about uh, about uh, the, 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 the previous discussion, just to express. Uh, first of all, I insist I'm not a panpsychist at all. Zero. <laughs> there's nothing psycho. There's nothing psycho in the in nature. Psycho is the name we give to the kind of things that humans do. Okay. Psycho is the kind of things that we give to uh, the kind of things that humans and maybe cats do. Right. Uh, is that mysterious? No, it's not particularly mysterious. I never understood the mystery of consciousness. It's like the mystery of life. Uh, 50 years ago, uh, biologists were talking about a lot about the mystery of life. Nobody does. There, there are open questions about how life developed first, what is the actual detail of uh, how information goes through. Uh, the same with consciousness. Nobody can say what consciousness is. Consciousness is the name we give uh, to what we're confused about, we cannot put in a, in, in a clear... We want to understand memory, we want to understand uh, uh, emotions, we want to understand uh, desire, we want to understand uh, friendship, we want to understand love. All this is a good problem. Consciousness is not a good problem. It's just the name we give uh, to all the things which we know how to address, or we, maybe we haven't figured, figured out. So consciousness, in my opinion, is a non-problem. 
quantum mechanics is a fantastic theory, okay, about which we have some confusion. And I, this is the only thing I disagree with my co-panel friends. I don't think we're going to understand it better when we change the equations, okay? Um, Maxwell equations, people were very confused about it. They were not understood by changing the equation. They, they were understood by Einstein arriving and say, oh, look, they're invariant at the Lorentz transformation and T prime is what clocks measure. Waha, now we got it, okay? Even Copernican uh, theory, once after Newton, it became clear, okay, we got it. Well, there's no reference frame, the velocity is relative. It's very hard to digest, but then we got it. I think a quantum mechanic will understand it in the same manner. Mm -hmm. We will um, understand that it's telling us that reality is different than the way we thought before. It's subtler, it's more relational, nothing to do with cycle at all. Um, and it's more beautiful, more beautiful than quantum mechanics, more alive, it's more interesting, <laughs> it's more intelligent. Very good. Yes, thank you, Carl. I didn't mean to put words in your mouth. I was just saying. Uh, yes, you meant. Uh, well, <laughs> I did mean, I, I should say that, you know, to say that everything participates in consciousness, I guess my question to you, uh, and maybe all of you, is, you know, if, if the uh, observed plays a role, then it should be that there's something non-fungible, uh, not NFT, but there should be something non-fungible about the human experience as opposed to like removing an electron. I mean, all electrons are fungible. All, you know, protons and pions, my favorite and most delicious particle, are, are, are fungible, right? They only have three properties. Um, and Sabina's written, and we'll talk this week when she comes on my show, about mathematical universes and Tegmark's ideas. But if, if there's something non-fungible, then that seems to be interesting. So I guess, Eric, um, you know, again, we, we focused on a lot of stuff that I don't think you, you were, you know, super, I think I misled you when I asked you to come on this. this but I, I want to ask you, what, what, where do you stand? Are you in the shut up and calculate or shut up and measure for those experimentalists out there? Where should the future go? Look into your crystal ball and tell us, what, what, what is this? I mean, we talk about entanglement all the time. I, I know that frustrates you. Where, where should we be going if you could, uh, if you could uh, set the tone? And then we'll take questions from the audience. Well, I mean, Who are you asking to? Oh, uh, this is for Eric to respond. To. Sorry. I mean, roughly speaking, it's this mug, and we should be talking about um, what we know it's of no, the structure. No general relativity. What? No general relativity. It, no, maybe it's on the back. Center. Maybe it's on the back. Uh, <laughs> um, topology. No, I mean, we should be talking about our core theories and why it, this 50 year. When we begin to incorporate, and keep in mind who's on this panel, Carlo is uh, central to the loop quantum gravity um, effort uh, as, a, as a founder. Sabina has been um, absolutely central to talking about some of the excesses of the string community and trying to bamboozle the world as to how beautiful everything is while their theory hasn't uh, managed to ship a product. Um, Right now is the time for courage to go back to the things that we stopped looking at 40 years ago when the string revolution came in and told us that anybody who didn't understand that the Green-Schwartz anomaly cancellation was going to immediately lead to a theory of everything and dancing and rejoicing was an idiot. And they were wrong. And we need to, we need to now reconcile with the fact that we've had a 40-year catastrophe in the field. That 
When we have that, when we recognize that the leadership of a small number of individuals was misguided and that we get back on track, there's an enormous number of people who've never had a go at trying to say where the field should head. And I guess what I think is that, um, I'll just make a very simple uh, observation. Uh, physics is about the physical objects in physical reality. And we found out that these things are described by an incredibly beautiful framework known as bundle theoretic differential geometry and topology. At present, if you think in terms of bundles, you generally don't think in terms of particles and fields that we encounter. And if you think in terms of particles and fields that we encounter, you don't bother with bundles. Something very bad has happened sociologically. And if we were sane, instead of trying to solve cool sounding questions, we would get back to work immediately with a large number of groups pursuing very different indications of what is likely to come next, as opposed to um, not dealing with the elephant in the room, which is that we haven't done much of anything for 50 years. Uh, that's a huge statement and one that I'm prepared to back up. I believe that when it comes to um, the quantum, the most important thing that nobody discusses here is something called geometric quantization, which said that Hamilton, who has one of the great two frameworks in, 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 in the business with Lagrange, uh, didn't go far enough that the Hamiltonian structures are actually uh, predictive of a quantum theory. That is that the relationship between position and momentum forms something called a curvature tensor of a line bundle whose sections provide a Hilbert space on which we do quantum theory. And um, we've had tremendous innovation in the frameworks of physics with zero innovation essentially proven in the physical systems that those frameworks are supposed to analyze. Mm -hmm. So my belief is that we would do well to get off of this topic, get back to work and listen to a bunch of people we've never heard from saying, well, what went wrong with supersymmetry, grand unified theories, extended objects, asymptotic safety? What are the new things that we've forgotten to do? Who has an idea? And then that kind of a community um, we're waiting effectively for certain people to retire. I'm not sure what we're doing. We should be holding a conference that tries to say, here are the 73 ways that we might go differently when we, from the period when we only really had one or two guiding lights. The, you know, I'll just say it very clearly. Uh, quantum gravity is not clearly the question we were all supposed to be working on 40 years ago. And I, I don't even know whether Carlo and Sabina would agree with me but my feeling is, is that I'd much rather know why are there three generations? Why is nature flavor chiral? Why these particular internal quantum numbers? What do we believe is the pattern of the masses? Those are the questions that uh, excite me in the way that consciousness and the brain seems to excite others. Okay, well, I'm going to get to something exciting for me. I, I do want to get Carlo and Sabina's response to that. But you did have an event with Brian Green on this very channel with Sabina and with Michael Shermer. Uh, uh, about the theories of everything. We're not going to talk uh, more about that, but it does show the level of interest in the field. Uh, by the way, there's thousands of people watching this online, guys. This has really been such a smashing success. Hit the like button and subscribe to this channel, please. Uh, if you want to see more of these with uh, same speakers, different speakers, different hosts. Um, but I want to take the host prerogative and, and kind of modify a question from our audience now. And that comes from a person whose name is Sir Great, which 
you know, I, I'd like to be known as that. I, I try to ask my kids to do that. Uh, call me that. Um, he's asking, or she's asking, I guess, uh, oh, what does the G minus two muon experiment say is about reality? I want to rephrase that. I want to ask two questions, starting with, 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 uh, with Sabina and then Carlo. Um, we see these measurements. Eric was just talking about, we should have a conference. Well, like they did, it was called Shelter Island. They brought together experimentalists. What are some of the exciting experiments that people are doing? You talk about fifth forces and stuff on your channel and in this wonderful new book, but shouldn't we be really kind of confronting existing data? Do we need new data? Do we need new ideas? Um, and, and I'll have a follow-up question um, for Eric uh, on this very topic. But Sabina, experiment, physics, new forces, do they fit in? to the framework of reality, quote unquote, like G minus uh, two and uh, the LHCB experiment, et cetera? <laughs> okay, so you, you've totally lost me there with the question, but let me just say something. So we need both data and ideas to say the obvious. Uh, and we're, right now we're, we're getting new data from the Webb telescope, which I think is really, really exciting. And I think all astrophysicists are excited about this. Uh, it can really tell us something about how dark matter works or doesn't work in the early universe uh, with the formation of galaxies. Like, uh, because the, the standard dark matter paradigm uh, says that galaxies should build up very gradually. So basically there shouldn't be any big galaxies uh, way, way back uh, at very high redshift. And this is something that the Webb telescope will, will allow us to tell. Um, now, the question was about the muon G minus two. What does it tell us about reality? Uh, I have no idea. The only thing we know is that um, the prediction from the standard model for the value of the G minus two is a few standard deviations away from the measured value. I think it's now at 4.2 sigma or something. That's the discrepancy. However, those calculations are really, really, really difficult. <laughs> and it's, it's not just quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, and there's a lot of uh, nuclear physics, uh, hadronic physics and stuff uh, going uh, in. And I think a lot of people, including me, uh, think uh, there's probably something wrong maybe that's too strong to put it something weird was the calculation going on they're probably underestimating uh their uncertainty and if they're misjudging the uncertainty then the discrepancy might actually be mm -hmm. uh much smaller so, um, uh, oh, yeah mm -hmm. so i think yeah. I'd, I'd stop there yeah carlo um when we see new data do we have to ask uh, if that it can be reconciled with what we already understand about quantum mechanics, or do we have to come up with a new theory of everything? We are in a peculiar situation in which uh, um, physics has been, uh, uh, other times in the past, but rarely. Uh, usually, I think uh, physics has been in a different, diff different situation than ours. For instance, when I was a student at university, there were zillions of data say the strong interactions and nobody could make sense of them. Or there was very, very rough ways of making sense of them that worked very badly. Today, <laughs> we are in a funny situation in which uh, this set of fundamental theories that uh, Eric showed on her, his cover, without, without gravity, without cosmological concept. Um, there is no indication almost, I'll, I'll, I'll come to the almost in a moment, uh, that anything we measure escape those theories. So uh, one can ask, okay, so what founds this theories? Maybe some unification. Why three, Why those numbers and the constant? Why Why the cosmological constant is small? Why the three generation? So one can ask this question. It's okay. 
Um, but we don't have a, a, what scientists usually have, which is data to explain. Uh, but we do have some. I agree with Sabine that G minus two is not very convincing. My bet on G minus two is exactly what Sabine is saying, namely that the theoretical, the, the, the experimental calculation seems reliable. The theoretical, not at all. In fact, I have friends in QCD on the lattice that have arguments to say that the theoretical calculation um, it's very complicated, uses indirect things, and uh, it, it probably um, uh, trusts itself too much, and uh, and uh, it might move toward the experiment. So I don't see it's, a, it's very tempting, especially since uh, um, for 40 years we have heard uh, experimentally say, oh, we see a deviation from the standard model. They've all come back. They've all uh, been reabsorbed. The standard model is extremely successful. So I would take our successful theory for what they are, successful theory. Like Einstein took uh, um, uh, Maxwell theory, an extremely successful theory on which to build more and address the open questions. And there are open questions. We don't know what dark matter is. This is an open question. It's real. These are the data which we don't understand. We have mm -hmm. 23 of dark matter, which means non-reliable. Um, but there is more. For instance, we have this beautiful picture of black holes in the sky, right? We all were amazed by this. The, the picture is actually the, 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 the plasma super hot that rotates around the black hole, which is matter spiraling and falling into the hole, right? We, we essentially see the matter falling. Uh, half an hour after that, it goes inside. We know general relativity, so we know what happens inside the horizon. We know it goes to the center, and then we know nothing. We don't know what happened to all that matter. We have a hole, we have everything falling in, and we have no idea what happened going in. This is a perfectly well-posed physical question because uh, most likely, I mean, those are big black holes, so stay there forever. But it's very possible that there are small black holes produces, we don't know, we're not sure, producing the early universe, and they might have ended up the life already. So, that's physics to understand. There's stuff in the universe we don't understand. And we have tools to try to do theories about that, try to expand our theories about that. So I'm very much with Eric that we sort of wasted 40 years running uh, big theories like string supersymmetry that has uh, have uh, most likely failed. Um, and the problem was not to, to explore those theories, not a beautiful theory, extremely beautiful theory. They were worth exploring. The mistake was that everybody was doing that. There are a few courageous people uh, and others who were uh, trying other directions. I am pretty confident loop quantum gravity. I'm just coming back from the big loop quantum gravity conference in Lyon. It was fantastic, the new result, new attempt. Do I know it's right? No, I don't. I, If I have to bet, I bet on this, of course. Uh, but there are, and I hope that loop quantum gravity is gonna tell us, for instance, more about the early universe what might happen closer to the Big Bang or inside the black holes, and perhaps even for dark matter. These right. are the interesting open questions for me. Not right. consciousness. Let consciousness to the neuroscientists. Yeah. They're, good, they're good enough. Yeah, although if you leave it to Stuart Hameroff, he'll sell you, he already has the answer. Um, last question uh, before we start to wrap up, and, and just so appreciative, and I will give you all a proper send-off in just a minute. Uh, this question is about, again, about uh, um, <clears throat> Sir Roger Penrose. This is about gravitational collapse of the wave function. Sabina talked about in terms of consciousness and perception. We're not talking about that now. Eric, 
and then Carlo and Sabina. Um, what do you? What is this notion of gravitational collapse? Does it perhaps provide any illumination? First, maybe Eric, if you could explicate it a little bit based on your wonderful interview with with Roger. Um, what what is it, and what are its promising and its drawbacks features? Well, since I didn't have a book to promote, let me promote a, a theory. Um, I think that uh, maybe the most interesting model of how gravity is harmonized with the quantum without being quantized in the most direct fashion is that gravity is the engine of observation. And so my claim has been hmm. that um, if you imagine that space-time, as we are told, is doomed, uh, my favorite candidate is to replace the four dimensions, one of time and three of space, with those uh, four dimensions together with those plus 10 additional dimensions of Einstein's theory uh, for his symmetric two tensor. And then what would happen is, is that you would have a 14 dimensional structure and every metric would be a bridge between that 14 dimensional world and the four dimensional world. And then what you would have is that every time you chose a metric that is gravity, you would pull back different data from a, something that looked like a multiverse. And you start to understand that the real problem, this is the thing I was hoping we were going to get to, so I'm going to squeeze it in here because it, it, I don't think we did. The big problem in this area is trying to go after every theory that you've never thought of as if it were something called hidden variables. And then you want to prove something, which is that no hidden variable theory can exist that blah, blah, blah. It's an attempt to knock out your competition uh, from the get-go, which is that you're going to speak about all the theories that haven't been discovered. Now, if you think about locality, if you're listening, let's say, to Whole lot of Love by Led Zeppelin, and you're doing it on an old-style record, you may hear a skip where suddenly it jumps a track and you're, you're, two, minute, you're two seconds rather in your future. Now, that's a local operation on a phonograph because the phonograph is a two-dimensional surface. But in time, it's a non-local operation because your, your stylus skipped a, a track. Mm -hmm. um, the issues with locality, with unitarity, with uh, stability, all of these things that quantum uh, field theory has to take into account is that if you're not in the proper theory, you can't really evaluate them. So my, my personal belief is that gravity has to be harmonized, but not necessarily quantized, and that gravity may be the observer. And the way in which you avoid a Schrodinger's cat problem between you know, a superposition of two quantum planets, let's say, is, is that whatever gravity field you throw up always pulls back data from a different space to the four-dimensional space that we, we perceive that is compatible with where the stylus landed on the record, where the record is the 14-dimensional object. Okay, great. Carla, I'm sorry, we only have 30 seconds. If you'd like to respond to anything you've heard today or the specific question from the listeners uh, about uh, Penrose's gravitational collapse of the wave function. 30 seconds, please. I'm sorry. I feel like, you know, Einstein had a couple of two or three wrong papers. And I feel like if you keep asking me about the two or three wrong paper by Einstein, I mean, look at the fantastic things Roger Penrose did. It's marvelous. Look at spin network. Look at tiling. Look at quasi-crystal. Look at gravitational collapse. Look at the um, uh, 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 twisters. <laughs> I can't even remember that. 
It's a marvelous amount of science that Penrose does. Why looking at it? Only two that don't make sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The Einstein uh, could have had a good career if he didn't have those blunders. Um, guys, I want to thank you all so, so much. And I want to just uh, enter now. We're in, the, we're in the spin zone now. We're going to increase the angular momentum because I do want to promote uh, the work of this phenomenal uh, panel of uh, friends and guests, uh, starting with Carlo Ravelli, who's written so many books, is such a gracious, generous person, spent 10 hours last summer recording uh, the voice of a 400-year-old dead Italian man named Salviati uh, for me and uh, all the riches that he will get from that project. But his book, Helgoland, is not to be missed. I did interview with him. You can find that on Dr. Brian Keating YouTube channel. We've done three or four interviews so far. Uh, he's a phenomenal and gracious uh, human being, one of my favorite thinkers, original thinkers. Uh, I want to thank you. You can find him on Twitter at Carlo Ravelli. Uh, next is my good friend, Eric Weinstein. can be found at Eric R. Weinstein. You can find many interviews. He's my most frequent guest on the Into the Impossible podcast or Dr. Brian Keating YouTube channel. He has a website, ericweinstein.org. You can find out about Geometric Unity there and other places and join and watch wonderful videos and animations. He's available at Eric Weinstein on Twitter. And then last but certainly not least, Sabina Hassenfelder, who has a wonderful new book, which I've read and devoured. Uh, and I love the, the beautiful butterfly on the cover. Um, I'm going to ask her about that when she comes on this week uh, onto the YouTube channel. And she can be found SKDH on Twitter. And on her, she has a newsletter, which I subscribe to and you should all subscribe to. Uh, speaking of subscriptions, if you do subscribe to my newsletter, briankeating.com slash list, and you live in the US, sorry, you folks in the UK and elsewhere, I will send you a piece of space dust, a piece of genuine 4.3 billion year old meteorite sample from the early solar system. Uh, that's at briankeating.com slash list. I'm Brian, Dr. Brian Keating on Twitter and YouTube. And I want to thank you guys so much and thank the audience for the wonderful questions. Remember, hit the thumbs up button if you haven't already uh, and leave a comment. Do you want to see these speakers back again? What would, else would you like to learn about from the wonderful Institute for Art and Ideas? And I want to thank you all so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day and tune in next time. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap on part two of two. A wide-ranging debate with my friends Carla Ravelli, Sabina Hassenfelder, and Eric Weinstein, uh, my most frequent guest on the Into the Impossible podcast, followed by Sabina, who has a new book out called Existential Physics. I just did a recording of an interview with her and later in the week of uh, July 25th when I recorded the live video uh, that the audio you just listened to was extracted from. Anyway, uh, subscribe to the podcast uh, and the YouTube channel. You won't want to miss the interview I did with Sabina. And surely Eric and Carla will be guests as well in the future. Uh, for now, I just want to ask you for a repayment option. You need, you owe me exactly $0, but you can really help me out by leaving a rating and or a review of this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Every podcast app nowadays allows you to leave a small constellation of stars. I hope I'll earn five stars from you. Uh, but if not, I hope uh, you'll explain why, and you can explain why and leave a rating, as well as a written review on Apple Podcast. As uh, just this week, I got from the United States from Autophism, who wrote uh, Understandable and Wide-Ranging Physics. Dr. Keating is jovial and always self-effacing, and he lets the guests make their points. You'll learn a lot from the podcast. And so I really appreciate that. You can leave a review, as I say, uh, a written review on Apple Podcasts only. Give me some feedback. I didn't have any ads in this episode, um, unlike other episodes. Uh, but um, but I hope that you will pay me back, at least with that one request, which is to leave a rating or review. So for now, I want to thank you 
for going into the impossible with me, my special guests, and staying tuned for future episodes. Nick Ballstrom, Bernardo Kastrup by popular demand, and many, many other great thinkers and uh, writers who have honored me by agreeing to come on this show. And it's really because of the feedback uh, and the size of the audience, which has grown to over 100,000 people. I cannot thank you enough, but I only ask for one thing, which is those ratings, reviews, subscriptions on YouTube. All these things are free. You don't have to pay for any of it. And I might even send you a chunk of space dust if you subscribe to my mailing list and live in the USA. I give away meteorites. I give away copies of my books, audiobook with Carlo Rovelli called The Dialogue by Galileo, etc., etc. I know you're going to enjoy it, and uh, I hope you'll do me that favor. And for now, I'm wishing you a magical rest of your week. And thank you for going into the impossible with me, Brian Keating. Take care. <laughs>